Today is indeed Earth Day, which is perhaps the most sacred day in all of the Unitarian Universalist liturgical calendar, such that one exists. For modern UUs, we are probably more unified over the spiritual importance of Earth Day than that of Easter or even, even Christmas. Yes, we Unitarian Universalists of the 21st century are more or less in agreement about what Earth Day represents, though the lens through which we view the issue has changed a bit over time. Our spiritual ancestors, like Emerson and Thoreau, waxed poetic about the divinity inherent in nature if we were only to make the space and the time to observe it. A generation later, Unitarians like Audubon and Muir would help build our national park system and preserve great swaths of land for recreational use. By the mid-20th century, we would welcome the likes of Rachel Carson, whose book Silent Spring would engage the nation in a deep conversation about the use of pesticides in general, the ultra-poisonous DDT in particular. Current UU environmental writers and activists, such as Wendell Berry and Tim DeChristopher, continue to push the boundaries of our understanding of not only the physical risks of our human activities, but the spiritual crisis we find ourselves within as well. But as we heard from Barry earlier, we would like to lift up someone a little different this Earth Day. And though not technically a UU, she would be UU adjacent for much of her long life and contribute greatly to Earth Day itself and the worldwide ecological movement. Marjorie Stoneham was born in 1890 in Minnesota two parents who were a writer and a concert violinist. Unfortunately, her mother suffered from debilitating mental illness and her parents would separate when she was just a child. Thrust into an adult role much earlier than most in order to care for her mother, who was consistently in and out of psychiatric hospitals, she turned to reading and writing and nature for solace. Her mother would die from breast cancer when Marjorie was a young woman, after which she would graduate magna cum laude from Wellesley College. She married soon after college, but would divorce just as quickly after discovering her husband to be a fraud and bigamist. In 1915, at the age of 25, she would move in with her father in a tiny town of 5,000 people in southern Florida, where he had just begun publishing his small local newspaper. It would be the first time she had seen her father since her parents' separation and divorce when she was six. And uh, anyone want to guess the name of that tiny 5,000-person town? Miami. Do you want to guess the name of the newspaper that Mr. Stoneman started? The Miami Herald, yes. So, her life as a woman writer would take her numerous places, most notice, notably 
to enlist in the Navy after a story she was pursuing about the first naval reserve, female naval reserve recruit fell through. So rather than not turn in the article, she decided to enlist and write about herself. <laughs> she would later recount that she was ill-suited for the military, unfortunately, especially as her super superior officers never learned to appreciate her habit of consistently correcting their grammar. <laughs> After an honorable discharge, she continued to serve, but this time with the American Red Cross, was stationed in Paris at the end of the First World War, tending to wounded soldiers and refugees. When she returned to Miami after the armistice, the population had quadrupled in uh, en route to adding 100,000 new people over the next decade. And the Miami Herald, which started as that tiny little newspaper, was beginning to be a journalistic powerhouse. She returned to writing, eventually taking over the editorial page and began advocating for women's suffrage, civil rights, and more intentional and sustainable urban planning with sanitation for all communities at its core. A freelance piece of poetry she wrote commemorating the murder of a convict in a labor camp was so powerful and so convincing that when read aloud in the Florida legislature, a bill was immediately drafted and passed to ban the practice of convict leasing which at the time rented inmates for essentially slave labor to private enterprises. She would then turn to fiction, writing national award-winning plays, novels, and short stories, many of which, several dozen of which, were published in the Saturday Evening Post, and made her, if not a household name, one of the most respected female short fiction writers in the 30s and 40s. In the early 1940s, she was commissioned to write about the Miami River for the Rivers of America series, but Stoneman Douglas would convince the publisher to let her expand the scope of her research to encompass the whole of the Everglades. After five years of intensive work with renowned geologist Gerald Parker, she published the first edition of River of Grass in 1947. This has been compared to Rachel Carson's A Silent Spring, which we mentioned earlier. Uh, this work would not only prevent the planned draining, clear-cutting, and land-filling of Florida's Everglades, but it would really set the stage for the global ecological movement. In 1947, Marjorie Stoneman Douglas was already 57 years old, a respected writer, an accomplished advocate for change, and financially secure. So there was really no need for her to keep working, right? She could enjoy some well-earned retirement on a Miami beach, which would have seemed vacant by today's standards. Well, maybe some of us would have taken that route, but not our dear old Marjorie. In 1948, Appalled that the, black, the local black neighborhood was not connected to the municipal sewer system, she helped craft and pass a law that required homes in Miami to have working toilets and bathtubs and set up an interest 
free loan exchange using portions of her own money to front the cash needed for upgrades. As she was proud of pointing out in her later life, all of the loans were eventually repaid in full. So two years later, in 1950, she helped found the first branch of the ACLU south of the Mason-Dixon line and continued to advocate for protection of the Everglades, which was declared a national park in 1967, nearly 50 years after her first article on the subject appeared in the editorial section of the Miami Herald. Well, now that she was uh, 70 years old, nearly 70 years old, and the beloved Everglades were protected, it was time for her to retire. Right? <laughs> nope. In 1973, she was taking on the Army Corps of Engineers for building canals that diverted water from the Everglades to nearby sugarcane plantations. Ten years later, she voiced opposition to the planned draining of a neighborhood built on the margins of the Everglades, a neighborhood, she said, never should have been constructed in the first place. And despite being the lone voice of opposition at the Everglades City Town Meeting, the neighborhood would not be drained and the settlement eventually abandoned. In 1985, at the age of 95, Stoneman Douglas addressed the governor of Florida to improve the working conditions of migrant workers and improve the living conditions of Cuban refugees who had been flocking to Miami since the rise of Castro in 1959, drawing on her wealth of experience from so many years before working in Paris after World War I. At the exact same time, 85, she was working with the Dade County School Board to provide nearly $2 million for a permanent structure to house the Biscayne Nature Center, which indeed received its building and a new name, the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas Biscayne Nature Center, in 1991. So, for those of you keeping score, she was now 101 years old. The next year, at 102, Dear Marjorie would help found the Friends of Dane County Library System, and of course, she served as its first president for the entirety of the three-year term. In 1993, President Clinton awarded her the Presidential Medal of Freedom, which is the highest honor the executive branch bestows on any citizen. She last addressed the Florida legislature in 1996 at 105 years old and would continue to write and communicate her truths for nearly three more years. She died in 1998 at the age of 108 years, one month. Oh, and in 1990, Florida named a high school after her. So that's quite a breadth of, uh, of life there. And there are a couple things I want to pull out of this extraordinary lifetime. We, of course, know what happened on Valentine's Day this year at the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. Unspeakable violence turned into unthinkable tragedy the likes of which might have silenced many of us. 
But the survivors of the shooting of this last February have been anything but silent. Raising the level of discourse on gun violence to a national level, inspiring the March for Our Lives movement, which has actually already resulted in scores of legislative actions across dozens of states, including Florida, that has begun limiting people's access to deadly firearms and aftermarket products that make these guns even more dangerous. As one welcome result of their efforts, this week it was announced a major manufacturer of bump stock accessories for firearms is shutting down production and closing in stores. And just like the Sugarcane Farmers Association and the Army Corps of Engineers who would attack their namesake, the students at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School have been subject to public ridicule and admonishment from the conservative media, politicians, and the NRA, and yet are still speaking their mind and achieving meaningful change. I love the idea that these students, most of whom are not yet 18 years old, thrust into the limelight by circumstance, have mobilized and vocalized and organized to become some of the youngest advocates for justice in our nation's history. And that they are in fact following the path laid down by dear Marjorie, who eventually would be counted among our oldest advocates for justice. As important and immediate an issue as gun violence is, the implications of crimes against the environment are really even more dire. We could eradicate every weapon of individual and mass destruction in the world, but if we are to fail to address our ecological crisis, we are still all doomed to a planet that will simply no longer support human life. Famed environmental scientist, attorney, author, educator, and founder of the World Resources Institute, Gus Speth, wrote recently, quote, I used to think that the top environmental problems were biodiversity loss, ecosystem collapse, and climate change. I thought that 30 years of good science could address these problems, but I was wrong. The top environmental problems are selfishness, greed, and apathy, and to deal with these, we need a cultural and spiritual transformation. And we scientists don't know how to do that." End quote. A cultural and spiritual transformation. And who better than we, Unitarian Universalists of every living generation, to lead that transformation, that revolution? Universalism instructs us that it's not just our immediate friends and neighbors with whom we must concern ourselves. It's everything and everybody. If there were ever an appropriate illustration of the ethic of universalism, it is the global environmental crisis, and that we are truly all in this together. We can no longer sit idly by while fracking continues in the Mississippi Delta or 
mountaintop removal coal mining continues in Appalachia, or ocean dumping continues in China, or clear cutting continues to ravage our South American rainforests. To paraphrase Dr. King's letter from the Birmingham jail, ecological injustice anywhere is a threat to ecological justice everywhere. That whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. And so we continue, as King would say, tied in our single garment of destiny, where our future is dependent upon the future of us all. Faced as we are with a universal crisis, what better philosophy to lead us forward than universalism, which is taught for nearly 2,000 years that all people are important, all people have inherent dignity, and that our primary goal as human beings is to live into the love the divine has for all of creation. It is in both our, our own self-interest and the interest of the whole that we continue to find ways to uh, combat climate change and ecological injustices here, but just as importantly, around the world as well. Just as the Stoneman Douglas students know that guns purchased in another part of the country are just as deadly as those anywhere, just as Marjorie herself saw the connection between unchecked residential development and the depletion of the Everglades, and with it, the loss of Florida's only naturally occurring freshwater aquifer. We must see not only the physical interconnectedness of the environmental situation, but the moral and spiritual interdependence as well. Now is the time, I can almost hear Marjorie telling us, now is the time to speak up and be heard. Regardless of our individual ages or affiliations, we have not only the opportunity, but a duty to speak our hard truths and keep speaking until our neighbors, our leaders, indeed, the whole of the world begins to listen, begins to understand. In this, we might be living out Marjorie Stoneman's Douglas's legacy of advocacy and joining the ranks of our spiritual ancestors and truly creating a better world for all. Again, happy Earth Day, everyone. Blessed be and amen.